you know, when you grow up in American society, you know, growing up as a, a person of color is not the easiest. You know, oftentimes you are portrayed in the media in a negative way or, or even, or not at all. And, um, and it can't help but affect how you feel about yourself and your community. Philosopher and poet Jorge Santayano famously once said, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The past three episodes of our independence segment have shed light on the various ways freedom is won and kept. Today, we dive into the concept that knowing the past can help save the future, or in our case, preserve independence. Human nature is human nature. We see history repeated often. Many civilizations have been compared to Rome, and many of them have fallen just the same. Without reminding ourselves of the past, it's only a matter of time until we forget what happened and the cycle starts over again. This episode features the narrative of Tom Ikeda, the executive director of Densho, a nonprofit that specializes in the sharing of stories of Japanese Americans who were detained in American concentration camps during World War II. Through historical images and recorded testimonies of survivors, Densho explores the principles of democracy and strives to promote equal justice for all. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. You know, I was born and raised in Seattle. My grandparents uh, came to Seattle in the early 1900s. Um, so first, my grandfather's on, on both my mom and dad's side, um, you know, came to Seattle, you know, as laborers. You know, they left Japan to you know make a, a better life for themselves. And on my dad's side, you know, my grandfather worked in the salmon canneries in the uh, Puget Sound area. And my um, grandfather on my mom's side, um, you know, worked in the uh, restaurant um, industry. You know, first as a busboy and then as a waiter. And then after several years of you know working in Seattle, um, you know they had both independently went back to Japan, got married, and um, you know, brought their wives to Seattle. And in the 20s and 30s you know, start having families. Um, and so when I look at um, my family's history, you know, both families were, you know, growing and thriving. 
Um, and pretty soon, my grandfather was, yeah, on my dad's side, was managing hotels, and um, all of their kids were uh, in school doing well. Um, uh, so by the time you know World War II started, um, you know, on my mom's side, um, there was already one college graduate. I think two others were in college, and uh, three of them were in high school. And then on my dad's side, his older sisters were already through high school, and my dad was in high school. And so it, it pretty much looked like a um, you know, typical American family back then. But of course, you know, when um, you know, December 7th, 1941 uh, happened when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, you know, that all uh, shifted you know, dramatically where you know, even though um, you know, my parents had never been to Japan, you know, they were all of a sudden viewed as you know, potential enemy as well as my uncles and aunts and my grandparents. And so they were um, sent to a detention center nearby Seattle um, in Puyallup which was the former uh, Washington State Fairgrounds. And they essentially um, built barracks, uh, converted horse stalls and things like that into living quarters. And they ended up staying there for several months. And then from there, they were sent to uh, Idaho to the uh, Minidoka concentration camp. I guess I was pretty bitter at that time. The fact that uh, I wasn't accused of anything uh, and uh, and I, I felt uh, that uh, the writ of habeas corpus was uh, suspended, and, and I, I couldn't believe what the government was doing uh, to us. You know, I, I studied the Constitution and the history, bills of rights in school, uh, and so. Uh, I, I says, gee, you know, where's my rights? What's happening to me? As young as I was, I was impressed that all of this was wrong. Uh, I couldn't understand why, why we had to. Uh, and uh, the Germans, they didn't have to go. My father was saying, geez, the Germans don't have to go. The Italians didn't have to go, but we were going. And so, uh, that's the kind of mood I was in. Later on, you know, you start thinking about it more and more as, as you get the feeling that, hey, you go to the mess all to eat. Uh, you can't go outside. Of course, at that time, there were visitors coming and things like that, but the fact that you couldn't go outside anymore, this is it. So, uh, and then later on, I, I, I you know, uh, I would go up to the grandstand, look around, because, you know, you could see the, you know, the whole city, you could see the airport. You're way out in the distance, you know that there's mountains out there, and you start thinking, geez, you know, sure like to go back, because those were good times. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific.
Then show was、um, created 21 years ago, and it started off with a、um, series of community meetings,、um, you know, in Seattle, where we recognized that the the individuals, the people who kind of lived through World War II, were all getting older. You know, back then, you know, many of、uh, people who had you know memories of the camps were getting into their 70s, 80s, some of the 90s. And we realized that if we really wanted to, you know, capture and preserve these stories, we would, you know, we should get started right away. You know, my background,、um, you know, before Densho was more in the high tech area, and so I worked at Microsoft, designing and developing、uh, what we called back then multimedia titles. You know, I had left Microsoft, and the community came to me and said, you know, we we really want to collect these stories. And is there a way that technology can kind of be a, a tool for this? And what、um, I did with another, you know, ex-Microsoft person who was on the project, Scott Oki, you know, we went down to California, down to Los Angeles, to Universal Studios, because there was this really interesting project called the Survivors of the Shoah project that was started by Steven Spielberg after he had done the、um, movie Schindler's List, and.、Um, And you know Spielberg wanted to document the stories of Holocaust survivors, and so the Shoah Project was videotaping these oral history testimonies of Holocaust survivors and then digitizing them. You know Scott and I got the tour of what they were doing, and what we recognized was that we could replicate. Um, a lot of what they were doing um, um, at the show project, they were, at that time they were using mainframe technology, so it was pretty expensive technology. And what we、um, recognized was that we could,、um, you know, having come from Microsoft, replicate a lot of this with personal computer, you know, hardware and software. And so that was sort of the genesis of Densho 21 years ago. And so we came back to Seattle, you know, pretty excited about the technology aspects. But what really kind of shifted、um, us and the project was when we started doing the stories. You know, both Scott and I are you know third generation Japanese Americans, so we're you know sanseis, and so it's our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation that were placed in camp. And、um, and when we started the project. You know, we sat down and had to learn how to do oral histories, and then we just started doing the stories. And it was really the stories that just transformed us. I still think back to some of those early、um, interviews where I would,、um, you know, listen to you know people I thought I knew in the community.、Um, you know, one in particular was a. A、uh, old high school teacher, an art teacher, I had, and、uh, you know he was、um, not only the art teacher, but he was the basketball coach. He was a Japanese American, and you know he told the story that I never knew when he was in camp. You know he was separated from his father, who、um, was placed in a Department of Justice internment camp, 
and Frank uh, Fuji, the, uh, the high school teacher, was placed at the Thule uh, Lake uh, concentration camp. And so they were separated for about three years. And you know, Frank was a, a, you know, a young man when he entered camp, actually in his adolescence. And in those three years, he had grown quite a bit, like five or six inches, and uh, he had leaned out and um, you know, became kind of this young man. And after three years, uh, his father was finally reunited with the family. And you know, Frank you know, told the story about how when they were in the family apartment, you know, his father would kind of go around the room you know, looking at the family members and acknowledging them and you know, saying you know, hi and you know, how are you. But then when he came to Frank, he took one look at Frank and rather than acknowledging him as a son, he said, you know, who's this boy? And um, you know, when Frank told that story, um, you know, he's this really wonderful storyteller that usually ends with a funny punchline. And when he said that, I was expecting to laugh in terms of, of you know, a joke of some type. And, and in fact, I, I, I did. I did laugh when he said, you know, who's this boy, thinking that Frank was you know, going to say something funny. But his face at that moment, just uh, you could see the, the, the pain, you know, the tears in his eyes. And, you know, I remember it was, it was such a profound moment because in that moment I, I really got how you know, profound and difficult that experience was and how hidden that story was. You know, we started uncovering stories that, you know, people just had never shared. And, um, and by sharing, it, it really started this healing process. Because I know for Frank and others, um, after the interviews, they were just so much lighter, so much um, more easily could they talk about the experience. And, and not just them, but we talked with the children of the people we interviewed, and they would oftentimes you know, contact me via email or phone call, and they'd ask me, wow, what happened in that interview? Because all of a sudden, you know, dad or mom, all of a sudden they're just so much more free. They're, they're so much more able to talk about things. And so I think through this process of Densho, you know, we've been able to you know, not only heal, you know, help heal the individuals who went through this traumatic experience, but I think it's changed family relationships and I think even community relationships. You know, 21 years ago, when we first started doing the interviewing, people were really reluctant to share. There were um, many in the community who felt that doing Densho was a bad idea. Um, I remember having this conversation with my father. Uh, my father, when he you know, heard what I was planning to do, you know, sat down with me and said he didn't think it was, it was a good idea. And the reason being was he said, you know, these stories are going to be so painful for the individuals and the community to sort of rehash. And, and it's better left you know, untold and just let them um, you know, fade away. And I remember having you know, a long conversation with my dad about this and, and really impressing upon him, you know, really if we don't capture these stories, um, they will be lost. And with that, you know, people won't really understand or realize the impact um, of what happened in the, the community and what the camps did to people. You know, they'll read about it in books and stuff, but they won't get that personal you know, experience, uh, the personal story of what happened. 
Uh, in fact, the um, the term densho is a Japanese term that that means you know to pass stories on to the next generation. And we just explained to them how important their story was, um, you know, not only for us but for future generations, and how that you know, we promised that we would we would take care of these stories. We would preserve them and honor them um, forever. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense. It was on a Sunday morning and, uh, and I was working, we were doing a little bit of remodeling in the store. When I heard, heard the news, I couldn't believe what was happening. We were kind of stunned. We were wondering well, what was going to happen because we were all in a Caucasian neighborhood and and all of a sudden business dropped down to a, a fraction of what it was before. Those those people that used to uh, come and trade with us, uh, we didn't see them. Shortly after, we started getting visits from the FBI. They said uh, some of our customers had complained uh, to them that uh, my dad was uh, associated with, with uh, the peop people that were uh, uh, sympathetic to the Japanese. Uh. When people um, oftentimes study what happened to Japanese Americans during World War II, you know, oftentimes they start with December 7th, 1941, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, thinking, okay, so here was the event that triggered this you know, sequence of, of events leading to this incarceration. From the NBC newsroom in New York, President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. We will interrupt all programs to give you latest news bulletins. Stay tuned to this station. Ladies and gentlemen, a special announcement. The entire regular personnel of the sheriff and police office has been placed on a two-platoon basis with 12-hour shift. All auxiliary personnel has been directed to stand by for emergency service instructions. The regular county defense program is functioning in an orderly manner, and citizens are urged to remain calm and avoid all unnecessary confusion because of hysteria. Go ahead, Honolulu. Uh, several planes have been shot down, and anti-aircraft gunnery is very heavy. All lines of communication seem to be down between the various army posts. Everyone here on the islands were taken by surprise by the attack, and even yet it's difficult for some people to believe that our air raid on these beautiful islands has actually happened and that lives have been lost. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, 
several squadrons of Japanese planes came in from the south, dropping bombs and incendiary bombs over the city. We have witnessed this morning a distant view, a brief battle off Pearl Harbor, and a severe bombing off Pearl Harbor by enemy planes, undoubtedly Japanese. The city of Honolulu has also been attacked and considerable damage done. This battle has been going on for nearly three hours. We cannot estimate yet how much damage has been done, but it has been a very severe attack. If you look at Japanese American history, what you see is that you know even uh, before the war, um, there was this uh, climate of Japanese Americans um, you know being treated as second-class citizens. In Seattle, um, you know, Japanese Americans couldn't swim in the public swimming pool. It was segregated. Uh, they couldn't, um, you know, for movies, they couldn't sit in the uh, you know, the main floor, they had to go to the balcony. In fact, there was a separate entrance uh, for Asians to um, go directly to the balcony and not be able to even go to the uh, main floor. You know, so Japanese Americans and their you know, Japanese parents were already being treated as this um, sort of other, you know, this suspicious um, other community that um, in many ways people felt could not assimilate in American society. Um, and then when Pearl Harbor happened, um, you know, the expectations of what was going to happen kind of varied. Uh, you know, many of the um, you know, Japanese Americans, and these were uh, teenagers and young adults who were born and raised in the United States, you know, had never been to any other country other than the United States. You know, oftentimes they were the, you know, the top students in their high school, like valedictorians and um, you know, uh, scholarship winners in, in college. You know, many of them, their, their expectations were that they would be treated as U.S. citizens and nothing would happen to them. They thought that potentially their parents, who were Japanese citizens, who weren't able to um, who were Japanese citizens because they weren't able to become naturalized um, U.S. citizens, even though they wanted to. And then as, you know, the you know, media and politicians in particular started, um, you know, painting uh, Japanese and Japanese Americans as this, you know, dangerous, subversive um, group that um, was a threat to our country's national security, um, you could start seeing how people, um, people's fears would increase and to the point where pretty much during this time period, you know, these months uh, following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it was hard to find people who would stand up for Japanese and Japanese Americans. That pretty much everyone uh, felt like, um, you know, for the protection of the country, actually removing these individuals was probably the safe thing to do and uh, and that generally was the sentiment that uh, you know finally led to the president signing the executive order um, that led to the you know the mass removal incarceration of 120,000 Japanese Americans on the west coast
That day, uh, it was Sunday, uh, so we went to church. And then we came back from church and my father was there and he says, you know, Japan uh, attacked Pearl Harbor. And that was the first indication that there was any, anything wrong. Uh, the second indication was, he says, uh, he had a bunch of documents and things like that. And he says, uh, help me burn them. So well, we, we spent, uh, you know, all day just burning things and uh, pictures, newspaper articles, anything that related to Japan, he burned them. We don't want anything that would incriminate us as being, you know, Japanese. And uh, my mother, uh, she had this kimono that she got, and and she thought in her mind that maybe this is this will show friendship between, uh, you know, our relationship between uh, her and Japan because the relatives were there. So she reluctantly took her kimono and burned it. Uh, there was some, uh, like the uh, Japanese flag, uh, a sword in the, and, uh, the mirror and uh, the emperor's uh, picture that, uh, that was given to him. And some of the awards that he was given by, by the Japanese government for good service to the American community. Not to the Japanese government, for his good service, Japanese service to the, to, to the community. And so what he did is he took that and, and I guess he didn't want to uh, to destroy that, so he wrapped it up, greased the uh, paper and whatnot, and put it in the can and buried it. You know, here's the kids that are your friends, and you go there and say, Hi, Bill, hi, Joe, you know, and they're looking at you and says, You dirty Jap. You, you know, you're slant eye. Why don't you go back where you belong? You know, very hostile, very antagonistic, you know? And, and you, you know, you're trying to come on, you're trying to hold back, and you, so you wondered, why are they doing this? You know, I didn't do anything. Japan's the one that attacked, not me. And so uh, it was a very trying time. Got into a few fights, uh, arguments, and they never associated with us anymore. They stayed behind, whispering, looking at us suspiciously. I never, they never did that before. This was an executive order that gave um, any military commander the right to designate a uh, military exclusion zone and from that military exclusion zone to um, exclude anyone um, the military commander deemed as, as dangerous. And you know, when you read the, um, the words of the executive order, um, you know, nowhere does it mention Japanese or Japanese-Americans or any uh, ethnicity, but um, it was clearly um, drafted um, you know, for uh, you know, the Japanese population. And, um, and in fact, it was you know, in memos and things, they, they talk about um, the reasoning. 
um, you know, the executive order, um, if you talk to, um, you know, sort of uh, legal experts, you know, they, they, they would question um, the legality of the executive order because, um, you know, here you are um, designating, um, you're, you're giving this incredible power to military commanders without declaring martial law and, um, and typically uh, to have given the military commanders such power meant um, a declaration of martial law. And in fact, in the memos um, and the correspondence with the president, uh, he did say that if needed, uh, he would declare martial law on the uh, West Coast to make this happen. But um, because there was so little opposition uh, you know, to his order, he didn't need to. But I know the Justice Department, you know, they were prepared to declare uh, martial law uh, on the West Coast to, uh, you know, make this, uh, to make this happen. The order that um, President Roosevelt signed on February 19th um, allowed these military commanders to, to uh, remove anyone they wanted to based on suspicion. And, um, and then Congress then passed a public law that essentially put more teeth into it by, um, by threatening uh, imprisonment and a fine for anyone who would defy this executive order. And so with that in hand, the military commander on the West Coast, General DeWitt, who was based uh, in San Francisco in the Presidio, um, you know, declared the uh, western half of Washington State, uh, the western half of Oregon, all of California, and parts of Arizona and Alaska as a uh, military zone, and with that um, excluded all uh, people of, of Japanese ancestry from that, and uh, that led to then the you know, mass removal and incarceration of the 120,000 uh, Japanese Americans from the West Coast. You know, to move 120,000 people, um, you know, is a, you know, sort of a challenge. And so the first step um, was they had to have these temporary detention facilities. And they oftentimes were nearby, um, you know, population centers where Japanese Americans were located. So in, like in the case of Seattle, um, the, uh, you know, the Washington Fairgrounds, you know, is about sort of like 35 miles away. And, and so that's where they sent initially all the people from Seattle to the fairgrounds. And what they, they actually called it was uh, Camp Harmony. And so what we, um, you know, as we look at, you know, the government and what they're, they're doing, you know, they use a lot of what we call euphemisms. Uh, they called the whole process, um, officially they called it an evacuation. And, you know, when you think about uh, the term evacuation, you know, oftentimes it's used in uh, cases of humanitarian relief, where there's like an earthquake or, or a hurricane and uh, people are evacuated for their safety. In actuality, when you look at the um, you know, uh, behind the scenes conversations and memos, I mean, government officials back then were calling uh, the camps concentration camps. And uh, because that was kind of the term that um, it was, was kind of used uh, before people learned about 
what happened in, in Germany, you know, concentrating a particular group of people behind barbed wires was called a concentration camp. And, um, and so they first sent them again to these um, uh, sort of temporary detention uh, centers. There were 17, uh, all kind of uh, on the West Coast. And then after several months, they were then moved to 10 more permanent camps that were more inland. And those were you know, ranging from uh, Eastern California all the way to Arkansas. And they were generally placed in these sort of desolate places, you know, very arid, you know, oftentimes kind of like desert conditions or swamp-like conditions. The stories um, in terms of the camp conditions, the one we hear the most is when you think about going inland to these places, um, you know, people on the West Coast were more used to a moderate climate and they were going to places where in the summer it was common uh, for temperatures to rise in the hundreds. And then in the, in the winter, oftentimes, you know, sub-zero degree temperature. And so they talk a lot about the you know, extreme you know, changes in temperature and climate that they, uh, they weren't used to. And then the other thing they talk a lot about is just um, the boredom, you know, the waiting. And, uh, you know, it's like uh, you're like in a prison where, um, you know, sure, you can you know, try to do your activities, but um, so much every day is like waiting in line to get food or, or to be in line to, you know, get supplies or just waiting around. And so there's a lot of talk of just the, the boredom you know, the weather, the dust, and, you know, why your life is on hold uh, during the war. You know, the question, you know, we, we ask ourselves, so why move them into such desolate places? And a lot of it was political. I mean, um, you know, here you have all this, um, this information, uh, this um, sort of um, uh, saying that you know these people are are dangerous, that you know they're um, uh, potential enemies to the United States. We're doing this for national security reasons, and if you're the you know governor of Idaho or um, you know the, the you know, governor of Arkansas, um, you know you're thinking. You know what, we, we don't want these people near our people. And so they selected places that were really out of the way. In many cases, you know, they you know, probably didn't need barbed wire because uh, you know, there's no place for someone to walk to. I mean, if they really you know, wanted to leave, there was no place to go because they were so, they were so isolated. And so that was you know, done intentionally to keep these camps away from population centers. And oftentimes they were chosen to also utilize the uh, labor. Um, you know, in particular, I, I know a little bit more about Minidoka. And so when the camp was first established, it was pretty barren there. Um, but there were irrigation channels there. And so they used the workforce or the people in camps to really kind of uh, remake that whole area into a a much better agricultural area where that, um, you know, with uh, the labor and the water, they were able to um, 
encourage farming and things like that. And that happened, I think, with a lot of the camps where, because of the, um, you know, not only the knowledge and expertise of Japanese farmers who were placed in camps, you know, they were you know, oftentimes tasked to kind of remake that, those areas into more productive farmlands. Well, I remember the long lines and, and the going into the mess hall and, and uh, some of some of it was not too bad I guess in the evenings they used to have dances and and uh, I was I was in area D that was the the fairgrounds and uh, right next to was a, a fun house. I remember we used to climb up. And everything was boarded up. We used to climb up on a roof and then, then pry open a window up, up there and get in there. And we, we'd roll around the barrels and we had a good time. And uh, we had a sentry outside. And when, when we saw the soldiers coming in, we'd get the high sign. And, We'd all scramble out, and the soldiers would look around. We wouldn't find anything, and as soon as they left, we'd go back in, and uh, we did all kinds of things like that. Uh, so the camps were guarded. The uh, they needed guards to um, you know be at these guard towers, um, especially initially they were. Uh, you know, sort of manned with uh, machine guns and uh, barbed wire. So there were incidences of, um, you know, people actually being shot. Uh, and, and the reason given was that they were too close to the fence. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, so there were people who were shot and killed. You know, there was, um, you know, one camp that was made into what we call a segregation camp. This is Tule Lake. And so during the... Um, first year uh, when people were in camp, you know, people were given a questionnaire, a loyalty questionnaire, for them to fill out. And if the government felt that um, you didn't answer the questions um, in a way that showed that you were loyal enough, uh, you were sent to the Tule Lake uh, segregation camp. And you know the, the size of the camp ballooned to over 15,000 people, so it was the largest camp. But um, you know they had, I think, uh, close to a thousand uh, soldiers who guarded um, people at that camp. So you had, a, you know, again, a sizable population that uh, was needed, you know, to you know guard the camps. And you know they were armed. Um, at the um, Tule Lake, they even had tanks and uh, things like that. And so there was, you know, sort of this you know tension between you know the army. Uh, who was guarding the camps, and then the um, you know the prisoners who were there you know without having any trial, having done nothing wrong, and and so a lot of tension uh, would sometimes arise because of that. Well, after after about six months of uh, being at Topaz, you know, a, a friend of the family, uh, James Wakasa, was oh, shot yeah. and killed by an MP sentry. Yeah. Uh, so this was about six months in. What was the effect on, on you and, and your father and the rest of the family? Well, since we knew him, it was sort of a personal thing. Uh, 
and as far as my father was concerned, you know, they they had in the boiler room. They used to drink together, and and you know, he went to University of Wisconsin. He, he's an educated man. They exchanged ideas, so they were they knew each other and then and knew each other's feeling. And so uh, when he got to the when he was killed, uh, he took it hard, and of course uh, he became uh, one of the committee members to see. Uh, the, what, what they could do about it to, so that it won't happen again. So, uh, uh, and as a result of that, they changed their policy about having guards having guns and, and having only their sidearms and things like that that the guard gave. So, uh, he was instrumental in, in, in pushing that along. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, to him, I think it was a loss. So families were were kept together, um, but once in camp, in terms of the the makeup of the nuclear family, you know, kind of in a camp environment, uh, we hear a lot of stories of how the nuclear family kind of broke up because, you know, oftentimes uh, the teenagers, if you're a teenager, uh, you quickly um, decided or or worked it out so that you didn't really eat with a family anymore because you were eating in these large cafeterias. And so what would happen is oftentimes the um, you know, teenagers uh, and, and yeah, teenagers would eat with their friends and, uh, and sometimes the mothers would just eat with other mothers and fathers would eat the fathers. So pretty soon it, it, it became more of an institutionalized sort of living and, uh, and, and people talk, to, talk a lot about the breakup of the nuclear family in terms of the, uh, yeah, just how that family structure uh, in camp and, and how it sort of um, you know came to hurt families after the war when they tried to you know, uh, restart their lives. But always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us, no matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. Yeah, the uh, 442nd um, was a segregated infantry unit um, that um, fought in Europe, and um, you know, for their time of service and size, you know, such you know per capita, you know, they I think in military history are one of the most decorated units in in U.S. history, and part of that was because of the casualties they took. You know, on a, on a personal basis, you know, I talked about you know my my family, and you know my mom's uh, brother. Um, you know, at the University of Washington, you know, he was in the ROTC program. And, uh, and even though he was um, incarcerated at Mandoka, you know, he very much wanted to volunteer for the Army. And so he volunteered, uh, was a staff sergeant, um, you know, in the 442nd. And, um, and when he was fighting in Europe, you know, he was killed in action with a sniper bullet. And the, you know, the you know, artifact, the, 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 the piece that I have of him, uh, not only do I have a couple pictures of him, 
But the, the most uh, powerful one is, um, it's a picture of my grandparents. They're in a, a dusty field in Minidoka. And it's outdoors because, uh, you know, there must have been a thousand plus people sitting in these chairs. Um, and you can see the dust. And there they are uh, in front of this group, you know, accepting the uh, American flag uh, you know, for the death of their, of their eldest son. And, you know, the, you know, it's just such a stark image for me to think that, um, you know, you talk about um, citizenship and, you know, what it means to be an American. And here my grandparents um, had just given this um, incredible sacrifice you know, one, they had worked so hard uh, to come to this country and to make a life, and then to lose their, their oldest son. And then, um, and then to do it while standing in a concentration camp, uh, because the government um, that their son you know, fought and died for, um, you know, put them because they, they, they didn't trust who they were. Um, and I guess it's, it feels uh, even more in terms of the story you know, I talked about how earlier, uh, you know, Japanese immigrants could not become naturalized citizens. Um, but in 1952, the immigration laws changed. And, and my grandparents, uh, who had made this incredible sacrifice, you know, they were one of the first ones in line. And, you know, they um, applied for and became U.S. citizens in 1952. And, and so when I go to schools and, um, you know, talk about this experience, you know, I, I bring that, that photograph and I show it. Because, you know, I asked the question, you know, what, what does an American look like? And, you know, what I, you know, argue is that, you know, that picture of my grandparents, these Japanese immigrants who work so hard, you know, they're the ones who really appreciate what being a citizen is. And they're the ones who work so hard and sacrifice so much. And, and that's something for us who sometimes take citizenship for granted, how hard people work and cherish citizenship. You know, some that, that come to mind uh, when I ask a similar thing in terms of, you know, how did they feel as a U.S. citizen? Um, and what has come up is uh, this deep cynicism. You know, they, um, I remember one um, narrator in particular, I think the way he answered it was, you have all this liberty but you learn it's all crap uh, because, you know, he talked about how he was this, you know, law-abiding citizen and did everything that he was supposed to do. And, you know, they, you know he said they, you know, throw him in joints like this. Uh, you know, he later on, even with that cynicism, you know, he volunteered for the Army, um, you know, fought with distinction uh, in the U.S. Army in um, uh, Europe and later on became a, a, a public servant. And, and so it was, it was um, you know, good to, I think, ask him that question. And, and you know, part of what you know, he recognized was just this gap between you know, what you know, a true American citizen, their rights, and what Japanese Americans were getting. 
And so he intentionally, you know, told me he intentionally uh, wanted to be sort of this, you know, sort of pathfinder for Japanese Americans into the government so that, you know, they would get jobs in the government. And he ended up being, you know, a, a high-level official in the uh, customs area. But he says, you know, his sense was recognizing that um, unless things changed, you know, Japanese Americans, even though by birthright should have the rights of citizens, he recognized that that wasn't the case uh, during World War II for Japanese Americans, and that you know he, he uh, in his way, felt that he needed to you know change it by by you know, being kind of this you know, pathfinder. Um, so you have that kind of view, and then I interviewed a gentleman, you know, Gordon Hirabayashi, uh, who was a college student when the war started. And, you know, when he saw what was happening uh, to the government, you know, his stance as a U.S. citizen was, you know, if, if he doesn't stand up for the rights, um, you know, then, then, you know, citizenship doesn't mean anything. So he actually took his case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, challenging the, uh, the government orders to remove and incarcerate Japanese Americans. I mean, back in World War II, he, he lost his case. But here was a case where he felt that, um, you know, the best form of patriotism was, you know, to, to defy the, uh, the orders, uh, but to, to do it in a way that um, respected the, the rule of law, but would really um, persistently challenge what the government was doing and to get them to, to look at what they were, what they were you know, doing to the Japanese American community. On the curfew thing, I made a personal decision to break it. I uh, objected to it, but uh, uh, I was following my overwhelming teaching to be law-abiding. And so I, you know, my first reaction was to, well, that's the order, so I'll follow the orders. And, and then one day, I'm dashing home. Hey, Gordon, it's five to eight. I grab my stuff and it takes about five minutes to get home. So I'm just dashing home. And uh, it hit me. A question that I should have faced earlier just hit me. How come I'm dashing home and all your timekeepers are still there? I didn't, it just needed the question to be raised. I knew I couldn't answer it. I turned around and went back uh, to the library. Hey, what's, what's the matter? And uh, I said, well, you guys are here. You, oh, we got work to do. I said, I got work to do too. Uh, I decided if you guys are here, uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to work with you. I'll go back when you guys are ready to go. Nobody turned me in. And I didn't take that until it hit me. And when it hit me, I knew, gosh, I can't do it. That's two-faced. Uh, the only reason I'm subject to go is because of my, uh, the way it's stated. I'm a person of Japanese ancestry. In fact, there were, there were Canadians in the group who weren't even citizens. 
but they didn't have to go. <laughs> Some resisted the draft because uh, the government started drafting men out of the camps to fight. And um, these men we call resistors of conscience. They said, you know, yes, we will fight, but first, you know, let my family go free. But to, you know, imprison us and my family and then, you know, require me to fight for, uh, for the government, you know, just isn't right. And, uh, and so, um, so they resisted and, um, and they did on principle. So there's all these stories in terms of how you go about you know, showing you know, your loyalty uh, you know, to, to a country, whether it's even though you're, you're like in the case of one gentleman, you treat it like crap and yet you still volunteer and fight in the army versus a Gordon Hirabayashi who says, no, let's, let's, you know, let's go through the courts and challenge this so that um, the, um, the country will take a look at you know, the, the justice or legality of, of what they're doing. When they started to uh, draft, that was in um, latter part of March, early April, the first of the draft uh, came into effect when they started to draft the people out of camp. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, when I got uh, called in for uh, a service. I was the first one to be called in from Minidoka, I think. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, I, of course, uh, refused to go. Mm -hmm. My parents didn't know what I was mm -hmm. going to do. They, they, it was all left mm -hmm. up to me. When um, my parents found out that um, I had uh, refused to go, naturally when the draft call came and I didn't go, uh, my, my parents called, sat down with me and told me about, uh, it's up to you, whatever you did, do, and it's obvious what you have done, but don't feel that y you're, you're doing anything wrong, you're doing what you're, you feel is right. Whatever you do, you go with your head held up high and don't look back. When, when they came to pick me up, I had two FBI agents come pick me up and uh, I bade goodbye to my parents. I wound up going to the front of the uh, guard post and they checked me out as temporary leave as they took me up to Boise uh, County Jail. The, the uh, FBI agent kept encouraging us to, us mean there was another fellow, to um, change our mind and volunteer and we'll forget all about this. But I was too scared. I didn't say anything. Finally, my time to uh, appear before the judge came to plea our case. My name starting with an A and my first name is G. I was the first person to, for everything, first to be called up to the judge. And the judge would ask me what would I plea? And I said, not guilty and uh, then uh, we'll set your date for a trial later. You go back and uh, sit in the holding cell. 
We also were asked if we had a, uh, um, a lawyer to, uh, to, to represent me. And I told them, no sir, I don't. And so they said, well, we will appoint the court lawyer for you. And unfortunately, I wound up with a, a, uh, a lawyer who was ahead of the American Legion. The first thing he said was, you're a damn fool. Said, I'll be darned if I'm gonna help you at all. You're up on your own, boy. So there I was all by myself and wondering what should I do? What can I do? When they heard about us, uh, they wound up with a name, uh, the No-No Boys, also calling us uh, the draft dodgers and chicken and anything you know, a disloyal and so on and so forth. I guess the majority were against me because of my stand. I was quite surprised, I would say, hmm. that you would think that uh, uh, there would be more people that would think about this draft and say, is that right? The government lifted the, um, uh, the exclusion orders uh, preventing Japanese and Japanese Americans coming to the West Coast um, at the beginning of 1945. So the war was still actually going on. Uh, the war ended in August 1945. And the reason they lifted the order was uh, there was a, a woman, uh, Mitsuo Endo, who you know, challenged the government in her case, also went to the Supreme Court. And, and her stance was that uh, she was a loyal American. And, and, and not only, and, and she could show it and prove it, and that the government had um, you know, no right to keep her incarcerated um, as a, a, a proven loyal American. And, um, and the way she would show that was, you know, she showed she had this... Um, work history of working for a state government. Uh, her brother was uh, fighting for the, the army. Um, and, you know, there was, uh, and so she was like this test case saying, um, is it really uh, you know, legal to hold someone who um, clearly is loyal to the United States? Because the, the government stance at the very beginning, they said, you know, we're going to put all these people in camp because we think there are people in the group that are not loyal, but we can't we can't figure out which ones are loyal and which ones are, and so um, because of that, we're going to put them all in camp. So that was essentially the uh, rationale for the camps. Miss Endo's stance was okay, but here I am, clearly a loyal American, and you're still keeping me in camp, and so that's you know that's not that's not proper. And the Supreme Court agreed with her, and and as soon as they made that determination. Um, the government realized that you know the the legalities of the camp were were in question. So they um, 
rescinded the exclusion orders and allowed Japanese Americans to come back, you know, to the um, to the West Coast starting in uh, you know January 1945. Having said that, the most people didn't leave the camps until after the war in August 1945, and uh, the last camp didn't close until you know 1946. I heard that he was coming in, so I took off and went up to the gate and waited, and uh, I didn't see him. So I came back to my uh, barrack, and I kind of waited, and I thought, well, I'm warm again, so I think I'll go take another try. So as I got up to the street, there's a small man stopped me and asked where the Akutsus live. So I said, at the end of the barrack. I didn't even recognize my father, and he did not recognize me either because I, I used to be about 110 or 15 pounds, but at that time, I was only about 103. And both of us, we couldn't even recognize each other. So much energy and, and focus is on the, um, the war years and the camps. Um, you know, when I do interviews, it's oftentimes um, the time right after the camps that are the most difficult. Um, you, know, you know, one, you're pretty much, you know, pretty much all your assets have been, um, you know, have disappeared. I mean, you really are starting from nothing. Um, you know, the government, you know, kind of like uh, what they would do with a, you know, a prisoner uh, who's just, you know, uh, coming out of prison. Yeah, they gave everyone like $25 and a, you know, bus or train ticket. And so people were returning to places like Seattle with $25, you know, nowhere to stay, no job. And, and not only that, but it's right after the war, the United States had just fought a you know, bloody f war with Japan, and for many Americans, you know, they still viewed the Japanese as the enemy, and and by association, Japanese Americans as the enemy. So you know, people are coming back not only with nothing, but with a with into a very hostile environment. When you look at what was going on in the community, you know, there was a high rate of suicide, um, especially amongst the the older generation because in particular, I think they were the most vulnerable because they were, um, if you can imagine, in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, starting with nothing. You know, everything they've worked for their whole lives uh, has been taken away, and they have to start from, you know, the beginning, uh, from nothing, and, and they're treated in a really harsh way, and, it, and to many of them, it just felt impossible, and, and so, um, you know, some of them took their lives. It was a very difficult time for the uh, Japanese American community. And oftentimes people um, you know, wonder about this segment because so little is, is researched or talked about. Um, and part of it is, as you really get into it, people were just so busy surviving that um, you know, people weren't writing about it. They weren't um, you know, talking about it. They were just uh, surviving. And, uh, and so it, it, it was a, a really, really hard time. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert 
that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. What I um, really appreciate now that I didn't before was you know, how, how proud I am to be a Japanese American. You know, when you grow up in American society, you know, growing up as a, a person of color is not the easiest. You know, oftentimes you are portrayed in the media in a negative way or, or even or not at all. It can't help but affect how you feel about yourself and your community. Over the last, you know, 21 years, uh, taking the time to you know, really you know, listen to and hear and honor the stories of you know, Japanese-American elders who went through a really difficult time uh, during World War II and, um, and to see how much they went through this difficult time with such dignity and um, courage and um, and diverseness. I mean, there's such a, a range of, of the experiences. I mean, I really, you know, think about um, how that's changed me. I feel much more comfortable, you know, being a Japanese American. I um, am much more um, outspoken about, you know, uh, my, my history, my community's history. And it's, 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 it comes from uh, not only a, a source of pride, but, but I also think it's just important that people you know, hear these stories. And you learn about you know, the rights we have as citizens. And you, 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 I think I, I've taken them for granted. Um, it really, this project, when I go back and have interviewed, you know, now about 230 people um, about uh, what, it, what it feels like and looks like when your rights are taken away and how precious those rights are. You know, I, I, I just have gained just this really um, you know, greater appreciation for what it is to be a citizen and and what um, I think a lot about in terms of you know maybe what what I'm you know, meant to do is is to tell the story I mean it's you know not only to get other Americans to to think about um, you know how you know lucky we are um, you know to be American citizens but to also you know think about the vulnerable you know the ones that um, you know we uh, because of maybe the way they look, their religion, how we might um, question their uh, Americanness, and and how important it is for us to 
um, to look at that and to realize that um, you know we're so much stronger together as as Americans with you know this wide diversity. Um, I, I truly believe from the work I've done in, in learning about Japanese Americans and and their contributions to the United States. You know how much better our country is because of Japanese Americans. And yet, 75 years ago, they were reviled. They were they were viewed as the enemy,、um, as someone who you know most people in the country probably felt that you know should have been kicked out of the country. And and yet, you know, there's such a a vibrant, important aspect of American culture. And I think that that's true of 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 these other cultures. And and so that's. You know where I've been changed in terms of you know, just a, a better appreciation and also a sense of of really、uh, wanting to reach out and、um, and you know stand with with other communities that are being targeted. When you think of our independence and liberties, and how hard we fought at you know the founding of this country to have those things, you know, to have、uh, freedom of the press,、um, you know, to separate separation of of you know state from church,、um, these we you know we had known historically in terms of mankind, you know, how these、uh, forces can.、Um, You know, really influence a a country or a government, and、um, and in the process we created this amazing document, the Constitution, and in there, you know, there、um, and with its amendments, you know, they grant rights to individuals. I mean, I think of the Equal Protection Clause in the in the Constitution, and how if if only we had followed that. I mean that. Uh, that as individuals we are to be treated equally. That、uh, which means that、um, if if you suspect something of me or have evidence or cause to do something, then let, let's have a trial. You know, give me due process, and and let's trust that system to you know sort of separate、um, the guilty from the innocent. I think when we I believe when we follow,、um, you know, those principles, you know, our country is just this amazing,、um, you know, entity. It's this amazing, you know, some people call it an experiment, but it's something that depends on you know a lot of you know trust and courage、uh, to follow. That fear is such a powerful emotion, and with that. It's so easy to say, "Wow, they're a different religion, or they're from a different country, or they're from a different ethnic background." So our primal instincts say we should we should fear them. But our our founding of a of a country, you know, the Constitution, really set up so that、um, we could we could battle against that. 
And, um, and so in terms of, you know, going forward or today, you know, how can we, you know, be our better selves? A lot of that is to, is to stay true to our democratic principles um, and to really embrace, um, you know, and, and, and what has been said, you know, the perfecting of our union. I mean, it's all there. It's not easy. And I think every generation has to fight for those those liberties that um, our founding, you know, founding fathers, you know, did, you know, back in the the 1700s. And I think um, it's all there. But again, it's easier said than done. But you know, I'm just so, um, you know, as being a student of this history, you know, I'm I'm just so um, encouraged and believe so much in in our country and its fight for liberties for the individual, because I think, you know, that is an incredibly powerful concept. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. When I finished my phone interview with Tom, I sat back in my chair, completely stunned. I was speechless. I thought to myself, there is no way my America did this. The first time I heard about Japanese American concentration camps was in a high school history class. The teacher made a quick comment on it, we read a sidebar that briefly explained the topic, and that was that. For all I knew, those detained were obviously guilty. However, as I researched the topic and learning through the interview with Tom, I started to realize the depth of the suffering experienced by the Japanese American citizens who had to endure this unjust hardship. It also dawned on me that there are realities outside of my own that I will never understand. If you've been to our website and scrolled all the way down to the bottom, you would know that I'm a blonde white girl. I've never grown up feeling judged because of my skin color, or because of my physical features, or because of my culture. So the idea of being singled out by an entire nation because of one's heritage is completely foreign to me. Even now, in the present, so many people deal with discrimination on a daily basis. I can never truly understand what that is like, but I have realized that by educating myself of other people's struggles, I can learn to empathize with their situation. We are all humans. We each face struggles. We all have stories. Living in a society where social media reigns supreme, it's easy to lose sight of a person's humanity and to view them as an object rather than a human with feelings and a soul. 
Sometimes it's easier to see only race or culture or the differences rather than the intentions or the heart of someone. The mission of Profiles isn't to tell you how to think. Instead, we want to share stories, facts, and wisdom with you in order to pass on a wider perspective. I hope that these past four episodes have helped you see independence in a new light. It's more than just fireworks on the 4th of July or a long weekend in May. It's a gift dependent upon so many factors, each of which we can contribute to on a daily basis. The music for this episode was once again scored by the very talented Ross Bugden. You can find more examples of his work on YouTube. A link to his channel will be available in this episode's description box. Credit for the excerpts of interviews goes to Dencho and the Manzanar National Historic Site. You can find a whole catalog of interviews with survivors on Dencho's website at dencho.org. If you'd like to learn more about Profiles, you can check us out at profilespodcast.com. We will also have a gallery of photos available in the coming week that will feature many of the Japanese-American citizens who served in World War II or were held at the Japanese-American concentration camps. To stay up to date on news and changes, you can follow us on Facebook, Profiles Podcast, Instagram, Profiles Podcast, and on Twitter at Podcast Profiles. If you like this episode or the segment, rate and review us on Google Play or iTunes. And of course, be sure to hit that subscribe button. We'd love to have you join us as we continue this journey and uncover more topics. I'm your host, Julia Stark, signing off on this segment, Independence. Goodbye. Until next time.